Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young, and I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bakar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. A new term of the U.S. Supreme Court begins this week, and we're eager to see how the court will decide cases dealing with, among other things, abortion, concealed guns, and affirmative action in higher education. But what principles and philosophies will guide the court and each justice in reaching a decision? Throughout history, justices have described their philosophies in various ways. Justice Scalia, for example, called himself an originalist. Justice Breyer is often called a liberal or pragmatist. Chief Justice Roberts sees the judge's role similar to an umpire's role. And Justice Barrett recently stated that justices are defined by judicial philosophies instead of personal political views. Our guests on today's show will give us a preview of the upcoming term, and we'll discuss how the Supreme Court makes decisions. My guest is Erwin Chemerinsky, and he has been the dean of the University of California at Berkeley School of Law since 2017. He was previously the founding dean at the University of California, Irvine School of Law, and was a professor at Duke University, the University of Southern California Law School, and my alma mater, DePaul University College of Law. He's the author of 14 books, including leading casebooks and treatises about constitutional law, criminal procedure, and federal jurisdiction. And his most recent books are Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights, and The Religion Clauses, The Case for Separating Church and State. He is also the author of more than 200 law review articles, and he is a contributing writer for the opinion section of the LA Times and writes regular columns and op-eds in newspapers across the country. He frequently argues appellate cases, including in the United States Supreme Court. He was born in Chicago and received his bachelor's degree from Northwestern University and his JD from Harvard Law School. Welcome to the show, Erwin. Such a pleasure to talk with you. Excellent. Well, as your bio suggests, you are a prolific writer and you often share your views with the public through op-ed pieces. And you recently wrote an op-ed in the LA Times with a very provocative title, Our Supreme Court Justices, Partisan Hacks, All the Evidence Says Yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about your piece? Sure. Now, I have to say, the op-ed writer doesn't choose the title, but the first sentence, which I did write, said, if Supreme Court justices don't want to be thought of as partisan hacks, they shouldn't act like them. This was in response to Amy Coney Barrett giving a talk at the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville, in which she said, justice are not partisan hacks. My point in the op-ed was that over the last decade, the Republican justice on the Supreme Court have consistently handed down decisions that strongly favor Republican candidates at the polls. Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission that says that corporations can spend unlimited amounts of money in elections. The Supreme Court's decisions that have gutted the Voting Rights Act, Shelby County versus Holder in 2013, Bernovich versus Democrat National Committee in 2021, and the court saying that there can't be federal court review of partisan gerrymandering, Rucho versus Common Cause in 2019. My point was also that the justices' ideology does determine the outcomes and the decisions they come to, 
and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. Now, I know some of my listeners are probably yelling at their iPhone right now because, you know, they can come up with examples of perhaps Republican positions that were not upheld by the Supreme Court recently, such as President Trump's election fraud cases and Republicans who have made the case for years that the Affordable Care Act was a terrible idea and unconstitutional. But the Supreme Court has upheld that law a couple of times now. Those are examples of Republican justices not being partisan, right? Yes, but my point with regard to partisan was the cases that have dealt with the electoral process consistently favoring Republican candidates over Democratic candidates. You're right in your example that the Supreme Court didn't get involved in the 2020 election, but I don't think that tells us very much because there was no legal ground for them to get involved. What was striking to me was that all of the judges, federal and state, Republican and Democrat, found no evidence of electoral fraud at all. With regard to the Affordable Care Act, it's interesting that in 2012, four justices, Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito, would have declared the entire Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. It was only John Roberts joining with the four liberals that saved the Affordable Care Act. Speaking of Chief Justice Roberts, how would you rate him as a chief? How would you rank him against other chiefs historically? Because I think, you know, he gets a lot of credit, I think, for being an institutionalist and perhaps the least partisan out of, you know, most of the Republican judges. So I'm curious as to how you would view him. It's interesting. He's been the chief since 2005. And so we're talking for 16 years now. And yet I'd have to say that the jury is still out. And it's what happens next that's going to determine his legacy as chief. This is the first full term where there'll be five staunch conservatives on the court. Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And I think the interesting thing is, will Roberts still have some control over the direction of the court? Or has he lost his court? Just a few weeks ago, there was a case involving a challenge to a Texas law that pivots abortion after the sixth week of pregnancy. Roberts clearly wanted the court to enjoin the Texas law, as did Justices Breyer, Sinner, and Kagan. But the five staunch conservatives refused to do so, and Roberts was on the losing side. So I think we're going to see a lot about the Roberts court is going to mean with these conservative justices. And that means we'll also be learning a lot about John Roberts as chief. Well, let me ask you about that Texas abortion law decision. I think, you know, most newspaper articles that I've read talk about how the process might have been a problem. Some people call it a shadow docket. It's essentially a a docket that bypasses the extensive briefing and oral arguments that the public has come to expect when the court decides cases. What do you think of the shadow docket? What do you think of the Supreme Court issuing opinions in the middle of the night? And has the court used this process any differently from how the court has issued opinions historically? The shadow docket is when matters come to the Supreme Court for an emergency ruling. It's either an emergency injunction that's being sought or lifting an injunction that's been issued by a lower court. There's no doubt there are many more rulings by the Supreme Court in this way than ever before. A couple of law professors, William Bowd at the University of Chicago and Stephen Vladek at the University of Texas, have documented the increase in rulings through the shadow docket. I'm troubled when the Supreme Court is deciding important cases without the benefit of briefing and oral argument. To be sure, there's going to be a need for emergency rulings 
But we've seen such a dramatic increase and a rise in important issues being decided in this way. Let's get back to uh, your op-ed piece, you know, the the partisan hackery, if you will, issue. Do you see this as a problem just with the Supreme Court, or do you see it as a problem with the lower federal courts and in state courts as well? The reality is the ideology of the judges is going to matter an enormous amount in decisions. The higher you go in a court system, the more discretion the judges and justices have. And so when you're talking about the United States Supreme Court, where the justices can do basically whatever they want, how they interpret the broad language of the Constitution, how they balance competing issues, is a reflection of their ideology. And that's as true of liberal as conservative justices. The reality is Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia so frequently disagreed on the court, not because one is smarter than the other or one knew the Constitution better than the other. It's just one was liberal and the other's conservative. The two justices who disagree now most on the court are Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor. What causes that? It's the conservative on the one hand and a liberal on the other. Well, at the federal court of appeals level, often the judges have discretion, not as much as at the Supreme Court, not in many of the cases, but the reality is there's a difference between the liberal judges on a court of appeals and the conservative ones. When I have an argument in the federal court of appeals, I want to know as soon as I can who's my panel. And I can often look at the panel and make a pretty good prediction of what the outcome is going to be. When I talk to lawyers who've argued appellate cases where all they're ideologically defined, my first question always is, who's your panel? Well, you have argued several uh, you know, appeals and the appellate courts and the Supreme Court, and this is a podcast for litigators. Um, and so we're always looking for tips from experts to help us better prepare a strategy for cases. So knowing what we know now with your op-ed concerning you know, partisanship and judicial philosophies, what tips would you give to lawyers concerning how to deal with this issue? It's very different litigating in the United States Supreme Court or state highest court compared to in a federal court of appeals. The reason is when you're dealing with the United States Supreme Court or state highest court, you know exactly who your judges are going to be and you can research what they've said on this particular issue. In the circuits, you don't know your panel when you write your briefs. In the Ninth Circuit, where I've argued the most, you get your panel a week in advance. In the Seventh Circuit and the Fourth Circuit, where I've argued a number of times, you don't get your panel to the day of the oral argument. In the Supreme Court, the most important thing is also the most obvious. It takes five votes to get a majority. And I've briefed cases, as I've argued cases in the Supreme Court, I'm always thinking about who are going to be the five that I need to get. I remember, now it's over 15 years ago, arguing a Ten Commandments case in the Supreme Court. It was a case called Van Orden versus Perry, and it involved a challenge to a Texas Ten Commandments monument, six foot high, three foot wide, that sits right at the corner of the Texas State Capitol and the Texas Supreme Court. I knew going into the oral argument that I would likely get the votes of Justices Stevens and Souter and Ginsburg. I knew that I wasn't going to get the votes of Chief Justice Rehnquist, and Scalia, Kennedy, and Thomas. So the case was going to come down to O'Connor and Breyer. I made my brief a shameless attempt to pander to Justice O'Connor. 
If I could have put her picture on the front of my brief, I would have done so. The week before the oral argument, a reporter called and said, you cite Justice O'Connor 23 times in your brief. I said, so? The irony is I got Justice O'Connor's vote, but lost 5-4 with Breyer concurring in the judgment. Interesting. And I've heard in terms of trial judges as well, if you have a trial judge and you're looking for opinions that are authored by that judge that goes your way, it's a, a good pandering technique, I guess, but it's effective, especially in a trial court. You have one person you're trying to persuade, but it sounds like you also, quote unquote, target Supreme Court justice that you're trying to persuade when you're litigating there as well. Absolutely. And of course, for a court of appeals, once you can know the panel, you then have the opportunity to research what that judge has said. And so argued a lot of appellate cases. And as soon as I learned my panel, I go onto Westlaw or Lexis and I read what the judges on my panel have written about the topic. And it's very much in my mind as I'm arguing the case. This is saying what's obvious to every litigator. Your audience is the judge or the judges or the justices. And you're looking for the arguments that appeal to those individuals. Well, those are great tips. Um, I wanted to sort of back up a little bit and talk about uh, judicial independence. The American Bar Association has done a lot of work over the years attempting to maintain judicial independence. Um, I think under the theory that judges, I think, do their best to follow laws and shouldn't be personally attacked for the decisions they make. Do you see that view as a sort of Bambi-esque farce uh, since, you know, perhaps some justices look out for what's best for the party as opposed to following the law to reach the right result. I want to separate two concepts. One is judicial independence, and I don't think it's a Bambi-esque farce at all. I think the rule of law depends on judicial independence. And the way in which we assure judicial independence for federal judges is their life tenure and their salary protection. The way we assure judicial independence for all judges is the way we define their role and how we insist they decide cases based just on the law and facts. I think one thing we should be proud of in the United States is a very low level of judicial corruption. I'm not saying never, but it really is an independent judiciary that we should be proud of. On the other hand, I want to separate that from judges, justices, relying on their ideology to decide cases. It's inevitable when you think about the Constitution and all of its ambiguity, when you think about statutes that have to be interpreted, when you think about how competing rights have to be balanced, that all comes down to who's the judge and what's his or her life experience. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. And we shouldn't pretend otherwise. And what do you say to people who believe that the Supreme Court should be expanded through court packing, for example, as we see justices who use their judicial philosophies to follow those, to render opinions, uh, do you believe that the court should be expanded in favor of, you know, perhaps, you know, liberal justices who want to, for example, affirm abortion cases? On the one hand, there's an argument that says we should expand the court to create more ideological balance. Did you know that since 1960, there's been 32 years with Republican presidents and 28 years with Democratic presidents? But between 1960 and now, Republican presidents have appointed 15 justices and Democratic presidents have appointed only eight justices, almost two to one. 
Part of that, of course, is the way in which the Republicans blocked Merrick Garland and then rushed through Amy Coney Barrett. So there's a strong argument that we should have a more ideologically balanced court. But on the other hand, we're not going to see Congress expand the size of the Supreme Court. The size of the court is set by statute, not by the Constitution. A federal law could change the size of the Supreme Court, but any bill to do so is sure to be filibustered by Senate Republicans and has no chance of getting through. So it sounds like procedurally it's not going to happen, but would you be in favor of such a device to increase the size of the court? I would for the reason I said to restore ideological balance, to overcome what I perceive as the Republican court packing that occurred by blocking Merrick Garland and rushing through Amy Coney Barrett. I also would for another reason. Unless this happens, we are going to have a very conservative Supreme Court for a long time to come. Amy Coney Barrett was 48 years old when she was sworn in on October 26th. If she stays on the court till she's 87, the age of Justice Ginsburg when she died, Barrett will be on the court into the year 2059. Neil Gorsuch was just 53 and Brett Kavanaugh 55 when Barrett was sworn in. On that day, John Roberts was 65, Samuel Alito 70, and Clarence Thomas 72. I've long thought the best predictor of a long lifespan has been confirmed for a seat on the Supreme Court. So it's easy to imagine five or six of these justices being together for another decade or two. Absolutely. So let's turn to the Supreme Court term that's coming up. Which cases most interest you and which cases should we be looking out for um, as litigators? At the outset, we should note that to this point, the court has set about half of the docket for October term 2021. They're coming back on Monday, the last Monday of September, to take additional cases from their long conference. Probably we'll hear about 10 grants after that. And then they'll continue to take cases between the end of September and the middle of January to be heard this term. Anything they grant after the middle of January will be heard next term. So from the half of the docket that we know of, I guess the three areas that I would most point to are abortion rights, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Center, the gun case, New York Rifle and Pistol Association versus Brewer, and a case about religion, Carson versus Macon. Well, let's take each of those one by one. Uh, if you could just let us know what is the issue in those cases and give us a prediction on where you think the court is going. So let's start with the abortion case. The case I said is Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. It involves a Mississippi law that prohibits abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. In Roe versus Wade in 1973, the Supreme Court said states cannot prohibit abortion before viability, the time at which the fetus can survive outside the womb. In Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, the court said it was reaffirming, quote, the essential holding of Roe that states cannot prohibit abortion before viability. Viability is about the 24th week of pregnancy, at earliest 23rd week of pregnancy. Mississippi prohibits abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. The only issue before the Supreme Court is whether states can prohibit abortions before viability. And of course, if the Supreme Court says Mississippi can prohibit abortion at the 15th week, there's no reason that Texas and Ohio and Iowa 
can't prohibit it at the sixth week of pregnancy. Why then can't Alabama and Mississippi prohibit abortion from the moment of conception? So the issue that's squarely before the Supreme Court is whether to overrule Roe versus Wade. And you asked me for a prediction. Predictions are free and worth what they cost. <laughs> I long ago learned that he who lives by the crystal ball has to learn to eat ground glass. That said, I think the Supreme Court is either going to explicitly or effectively overrule Roe versus Wade. I think the Supreme Court's going to uphold the Mississippi law. There are five justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, who based on their prior writings and opinions have indicated they think Roe was wrongly decided. Maybe the court will just uphold this law and leave for future cases the laws that prohibit abortion at the sixth week of pregnancy or at the moment of conception. Or maybe these five justices will do what conservatives have long wanted, say Roe was wrongly decided and the issue of abortion is left to the states. And where do you see sort of the advance of science in this area? Because I think, you know, the Supreme Court had one definition of viability in Roe versus Wade. Do you see any movement on that given the advance of, of science in this upcoming case? At the time of Roe in 1973, viability was thought to be the 28th week of pregnancy. Now in 2021, science and medicine tells us that viability is basically the 24th week of pregnancy. Mississippi prohibits abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. Texas prohibits them after the sixth week of pregnancy. And in this sense, it's not about science. It's about they're trying to ban abortions. Got it. All right. Well, let's talk about the next case, which is the gun case. Um, same questions. Could you tell us a little bit more about the case and then give us a prediction? From 1791 until 2008, not one federal, state, or local gun control law was struck down. In the handful of Supreme Court cases about guns, the court said that the Second Amendment means what it says. It's a right to have guns for purpose of militia service. But in June 2008, in District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court declared unconstitutional a D.C. ordinance that prohibited ownership or possession of handguns. It was five to four decided along ideological lines. But the Supreme Court hasn't clarified the scope of the Second Amendment since then. The case before the court now, New York Rifle and Pistol Association for Spruer, involves New York City ordinance that limits having a concealed weapon. In order to have a concealed weapon, it's necessary to have a concealed weapons permit. And this is very restricted to when there's a showing of need. Ultimately, what this case is about is, is there a right to have guns outside the home? And is there a right to have concealed weapons? The Supreme Court has become much more conservative over recent years, particularly because of the Trump appointees, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett. Each of them, in their prior writings and judicial opinions, has been very much on the side of gun rights. I think the Supreme Court is going to declare the New York ordinance unconstitutional, and I think it's going to speak for right to have guns outside the home. Now, how much they're going to circumscribe that right, how much they're going to say there can still be government regulation is uncertain. Or to put it another way, I don't know how broadly or narrowly the court's going to write the opinion, but I can't count on the current court to five justices who would uphold the New York ordinance. 
Okay, and let's finish it off with the third category, which is uh, the religion case. The case is Carson versus Macon. In Maine, there are rural areas that don't have enough people to sustain public schools. In those areas in the state of Maine, there are school administrative units. They provide money to parents that can then be used to send their children to private school. The money has to be used for secular private schools. It can't be used for religious schools. There are a couple of schools, parents who brought a challenge to this and said that it violates free exercise of religion to keep them from using the money in religious schools. What's important here is that for decades, the issue before the Supreme Court, before the lower courts, was when may the government give aid to religious schools without violating the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment? And there were cases about when can the government pay for sign language interpreters? When may the government choose to provide money for field trips? When can the government provide textbooks? When may the government do this without violating the Constitution? Now the issue is very different. Now it's when must the government provide aid or it violates free exercise of religion. In a couple of cases, Trinity Lutheran versus Comer in 2017, and then Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue in 2020, the Supreme Court said, anytime the government provides aid to private secular schools, it must, it is constitutionally required to provide that aid to religious schools. Will the court follow that principle here or we'll say it's different in a situation where it's a whole school system and not a particular type of aid. Excellent. Well, I think we're all out of time. And uh, Erwin, I just wanted to say thank you very much for, for being on the show. Really interesting to see uh, how the court uh, decides these cases. Do you have any sort of final thoughts for our audience? I think it's important to realize this is the first full term where we have the majority of Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And I think this is going to give us an indication of what the Roberts Court is about this year and for many years to come. Excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. Daryl Wilson is off for this month, and we're pleased to have Latasha Ellis on the show. Latasha is a litigator in Hunt and Andrews Kurtz, Washington, D.C. office, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome to the show, Latasha. Thanks, Dave. I'm glad to be here. Well, I understand you're going to be discussing appellate issues today. What's your quick tip? Certainly. So as a nod to your conversation with Dean Chemerinsky, and of course, as a nod to the first Monday in October, which is for us SCOTUS nerds, the beginning of the Supreme Court term, I thought it would be great to discuss the important issue of preserving evidence on the record throughout litigation. So, you know, as litigators, we are notorious for maintaining checklists. So, you know, we have checklists for discovery, dispositive motions, pre-trial, and even post-trial. But checklists should also include identifying the evidence that is necessary to win and steps for preserving all issues related to that evidence for post-trial motions, but most importantly, appellate review. 
Of course, it is the duty of counsel to preserve a record sufficient to permit the review of errors that are assigned on appeal. So I have just a couple of tips today that may be refresher for some, but as the courts open up, I thought it was important to review. So the first tip I have is it is important to understand what evidence is critical to win your case, because that evidence will certainly be an important offer of proof. Many litigators often ignore issue preservation during the motion stages of litigation, but that is absolutely a mistake. Motions practice, particularly when you think about motions for summary judgment, they include trial briefs and objections to exhibits. All of those things are excellent previews and instructive of the evidence that is going to be important for a potential appellate review. So my first tip is making sure to not ignore issue preservation during the motion stage. The second step, somewhat related to the first, is specifically about motions and limine. Those are absolutely some of the best opportunities to not just narrow the issues and address the conduct of trial, but again, it's a great way to preserve specific issues on the record. So it's vital that attorneys spend a good amount of time during the motion and lemonade process to make sure that you fully develop motions and lemonade. And sometimes it seems like a bit of a chore right before and during trial prep, but it's certainly important, particularly if the court does not issue a definitive ruling on certain issues through the summary judgment stage. So my second tip is to make sure that you pay enough attention during the motions and lemonade stage and actually fully develop those issues for the record. My third tip relates to actually preserving an issue on the record with a proffer of evidence. This is sometimes necessary in the event that during the trial, the court may exclude certain evidence that you think is important. A proffer um, is appropriate to not only explain the substance and the purpose and relevance of the excluded evidence, but again, to preserve that record for appeal. So, of course, the steps related to offering a proffer is challenging the improper exclusion of evidence, you know, making sure that the judge actually understands your challenge and can reconsider his or her initial ruling to have excluded that evidence, clearly stating the basis of that challenge, and again, explaining why the evidence is relevant and why it should be admitted for the trial, but also ensuring that the judge rules on the objection. So sometimes during a trial with counsels back and forth, the judge may neglect to issue a specific ruling. And if the court does not make that ruling, then that could be detrimental to the record um, if it is something that you actually need to raise as an error at a later time. So first tip was to make sure that you don't ignore issue preservation during the motion stage. The second tip was to make sure that you devote the appropriate time during the motions and lemonade process to fully develop issues for the record. And the third tip is to make sure that you're prepared to provide an offer of proof in the event that your evidence is ultimately excluded during trial. So just to wrap everything up, I think it's also important to, you know, not forget the basics. Of course, there's some of the basic things such as ensuring that the transcript is intelligible by obtaining clear and audible answers from witnesses, verbally recording any sort of 
visual presentations that occurred during the trial, using words to describe, you know, what is happening in court, but overall just being cognizant and aware of what's going on during the trial and understanding what evidence is critical to win your case. So, you know, not even the sharpest legal mind or the best rhetoric can resurrect a great argument that was not properly preserved on the record. So these are just a few tips to remember as the courts are opening back up in the event that maybe your trial is not successful and you do have to appeal. Well, great tips, Latasha. And you mentioned checklists. And of course, I'm making my checklist for the next podcast already. And one of those items is to make sure that we ask you back to provide a tip for a future episode. So I hope you'll join us again. Of course, I'd love to join you guys again. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for our episode today. And I want to thank our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera, for his help with guest preparation and booking. Thank you so much, Rich, for your great work. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the Litigation Section's Audio Content Committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True, as well as Michelle Oberts, who is on staff with the Litigation Section. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and our audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.